We have the privilege of hearing from Janet Pope again tonight. We're going to be talking about Psalm 145, so I know it'll be great. So before she starts speaking, if you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that even though you are holy and righteous and we are not, you condescend to reach out to us and draw us near. Thank you, Lord, that you are our rock and our sure, strong foundation and that you are refreshment to our souls. I pray that tonight, that as we study your word um, in Psalm 145, that you would refresh us, that you would give each woman in this room exactly what she needs, that you would reveal yourself more to her so that she can walk away feeling loved and cared for and feeling like she can trust you with whatever situation she's in. Thank you, Lord, for Janet. I pray that you would speak clearly through her so that the truth resonates within our hearts and that we will be changed by it. We love you, Lord. Amen. Janet Pope, everyone. I'm so happy that so many people came back for more psalms. So I'm really excited about tonight. Okay, what we have here is a praise meter. And as you can see, it's on low. Okay, how many of you would be willing to admit that on any given Sunday morning, while everyone else is singing praise songs, your mind is somewhere else. Your lips are moving, but your mind is disengaged. Okay. All right. Well, me, guilty here. It happens to all of us. Last week, we looked at Psalm 1, which is a wisdom psalm that points to the importance of delighting in God and his word. Now, this week, we have a praise psalm. And what we are going to see is that praise on your lips increases the delight in your heart. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story growing up. I grew up in a very secular home. Not even one time ever in my entire growing up years did we ever go to church. Like, not even one time. And I have this very strange memory from the sixth grade. We had just moved to Florida and made new friends in the neighborhood. And one girl who lived across the street was over to play. And she said to me, what religion are you? Well, I realize now that her mother put her up to this because every week they headed off to church and they saw that we were just playing in the front yard. So she knew we didn't go to church. So she probably asked her, ask her what religion they are. So I said, I don't know. She said, well, go ask your mother. So I went inside and I asked my mother, what religion are we? And she said, we're Protestant. So I went out and I said, we're Protestant. And she said, I've never heard of that. And I said, I never have either. (laughs) True story. Okay, so fast forward to college. The summer between my junior and senior year, I heard the gospel, embraced the gospel, and became an enthusiastic follower of Jesus. 
But I was literally starting at zero. Like I knew nothing. I knew no Bible stories. I knew no hymns. I did not know how great thou art. I got involved. uh, I was at the University of Florida, and I got involved in Campus Crusade. And one of the staff girls probably felt sorry for me, and she took me under a wing and just began to teach me some of the basic stuff, like how to read the Bible and how to pray. Well, read the Bible. That's not too hard. Just open the books and start reading. Praying was another thing. I never really had prayed growing up, like maybe God help me or something like that. So she suggested this uh, system for praying. It's called the ACTS method, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Well, I couldn't make it through the first one, adoration. Like, what is that? That, w- that was awkward. Like, you're supposed to praise God for all these things. I didn't have any words for that. I could sing songs on the radio. I could sing songs at church. But when I got alone with God, there, there weren't any words. Okay, so my praise meter was low. And as the years went on, it kind of inched up a little bit. But I would say that the greatest surge in my praise meter came when I began to memorize some of the Psalms. So tonight we're going to cover Psalm 145. This is one of my favorite Psalms. And I think that after tonight, it's going to be one of your favorite Psalms too. Psalm 145, a psalm of praise. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Okay, so now that ought to get your praise meter moving. 
Okay, I want to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis about praise. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of an unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care no more for it than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Okay, so... C.S. Lewis's point is that praise on your lips increases the delight in your heart. Now, some of you may have the same experience that I had when I was a new believer, where praise is awkward. But this psalm of praise will teach us how to praise our God and get our praise meter moving in the right direction. Okay, we're moving our praise meter to high. Okay, I want to teach you, before we jump into Psalm 145, I want to teach you a few helpful things about Hebrew poetry. Okay, so the first thing is I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 31. I want to teach you how to recognize poetry in the Bible. Now, some of you English majors are thinking, well, duh, we all know this. Honestly, I didn't know it. So if I didn't know it, there's probably someone out there who doesn't know the difference between prose and poetry and how to recognize that in the Bible. Okay, are y'all at Deuteronomy 31? Okay, I hear rustling of pages. Okay, Deuteronomy 31 is prose. Every line, just every new sentence is taken after the next sentence. Okay, now look across your page to Deuteronomy 32. This is poetry. This is the song of Moses. And you see that it is typeset differently. Every line of poetry begins at the left margin. Okay, so that's how you recognize the difference between prose and poetry. Most history books and law books are prose. The prophets are either prose or poetry or both. All the psalms, every single psalm is poetry, which makes it a little bit more challenging to understand. Okay, so that's the first thing I wanted to teach you. The second thing is about alphabetic acrostic poems. Psalm 145 that we're going to look at tonight is an alphabetic acrostic poem, which means that every line begins with a letter from the Hebrew alphabet, and then the next line is the next letter. Now, you're thinking, but I don't know Hebrew. Okay, I get that. But I want you to know that there are nine acrostic psalms. They didn't have their own copy of the scriptures, and so this was a way for them to remember the psalms. They say, well, I can't remember the next one. Well, it's this. 
And so it was a way to help them remember. Unfortunately, because we don't speak Hebrew, a lot of the acrostic psalms, the benefit of that is lost in the translation. However, what we can see and what we're going to see tonight is that there are lots and lots, when you have an acrostic psalm, you're going to have lots and lots of synonyms piled up. David's got 22 ways that he wants to praise God. So you see lots of variety. Okay, now, the third thing that I want to teach you is about Hebrew parallelism, which is very important in understanding the Psalms, and it will open your eyes to the beauty of the Psalms and the complexity of it. Okay, in English poetry, we have either rhyme or meter or both. In Hebrew poetry, we don't have rhyme and we don't have meter, which is a good thing because then it would be lost in translation. What we have is parallelism. Corresponding thoughts line upon line. Okay, I'm going to give you a fuller explanation in a minute. In English writing, we are trained to avoid redundancy. Not so in Hebrew poetry. Redundancy is intentional. They're going to say the same thing over and over and over. And you say, well, I don't see why he said this and then he said this. He's actually saying the same thing. Okay, so I'm going to show you a few things up on the slides, but I also wrote them on the front page of your handout, on the right margin. If you will uh, look at those, you will see synonymous parallelism. That's where we're going to start. Okay, so synonymous parallelism. When you have two lines of poetry... The second line repeats the same idea of the first line, using different words. Here's some examples. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. It's saying the same thing, but in a different way. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Okay, so here would be an example or an illustration not from the Psalms. I might say something like, you're my best friend in the world. You're my closest companion on the planet. Now, I'm saying the same thing, but the second line makes it sweeter and deeper. It's a a sweeter and deeper way to express the same thing, okay? Next slide, synthetic parallelism. With two lines of poetry, the second line adds to the idea of the first line. New information. Okay, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The second line tells why I've hidden your word in my heart. Okay, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. The second line gives evidence of his love for the law. All right, I might give an example in English that's not in the Psalms. You are my best friend. You always have time for me. So the second line adds to the first. It tells why you're my best friend or gives evidence that you are my best friend. Okay, our next parallelism is antithetic parallelism. With two lines of poetry, the second line gives an opposing idea to the first line. 
The upright see and rejoice, but the wicked shut their mouths. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Okay, so let me give you another English example, not in the Psalms. You are my best friend, but today I'm rethinking it. Okay, so, okay, okay, let's go to our next slide. Okay, this is the bonus. Okay, this is for the high achievers. Four lines of poetry. His speech is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. Okay, so you see that line one and line three are synonymous. They're saying the same thing. His speech is smooth as butter. His words are more soothing than oil. Then lines two and four are antithetic to lines one and three. Yet war is in his heart, yet they are drawn swords. Okay, so it works with two lines. It works with four lines. All right, now we have an inclusio, what we call an inclusio. It's inclusion parallelism. And that is when the final line of a poem repeats the first line of the poem, either synonymously or synthetically. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the first line of the psalm, and it's the last line of the psalm. So that makes it synonymous, inclusio. Okay, so in review of parallelism, parallelism is verbal artistry expressed in corresponding ideas. A similar idea, an additional idea, or a contrasting idea. Now, the important thing in parallelism is not to be able to label which one is which, but to, but to be able to recognize parallelism because every single line of a poem, n- no single line of a poem stands alone. It either relates to the verse before or the verse after or another verse in the psalm. And you see, that helps us to understand Hebrew poetry. Okay, so who wrote this Psalm 145? What do we know about him and what qualifies him to teach us about praise? Psalm 145 was written by David. He was a gifted musician and poet. He wrote 73 psalms. This was the final psalm that he wrote for the book of Psalms. David wrote psalms for public worship and private meditation. But David was more than an artistic genius. His devotional life is a model for us. Now, sometimes we think of David that he has this idyllic life with one major mistake thrown in. But that is far from the case. He had stress at work, he had tension at home, and he had conflict in his soul. He had stress at work. Before he became king, he spent years on the run, hiding from King Saul, who was trying to kill him. When he became the king, he just traded his old problems for new ones. The Philistines were always knocking at the door. He had infighting among his own military men. Abner killed Abishai, so Joab killed Abner. Just another day at the office. He had tension at home. 
He had more than six wives. He had many concubines and a boatload of kids. Sibling rivalry? You betcha. And worse, one of his sons, Amnon, raped his half-sister, Tamar. So then her brother, Absalom, killed Amnon. Then Absalom decided to take the throne from his father in a conspiracy, and some of David's mighty, loyal men sided with Absalom. Well, that was until Joab and his men killed Absalom. There was no end to malice in the palace. And then he had conflict in his soul. David was responsible for the death of thousands of innocent people. Uriah was just one of them. His infant son did not deserve to die. 70,000 people came to the end of their life when David provoked God with a census. Now David knew that he was forgiven. He knew that God had washed his sins as white as snow. But you know there were days when he could still see the blood on his hands. He had stress at work. He had tension at home. He had conflict in his soul. He woke up every morning with reasons to despair. Instead, he ran after God with praise in his heart and praise on his lips. Somehow, David made time for a rich devotional life. Now, which one of us here does not have stress at work, tension at home, and conflict in our soul? But we can learn from David how to keep praise on our lips and delight in our hearts. If you don't have your own words to praise God, then borrow some from David. People have been doing that for generations. Okay, now Psalm 145. This is one of 17 praise psalms. And I wrote them on the back of your handout just so that you would know what the other praise psalms are. I also wrote there what the other acrostic psalms are. Now, most praise psalms, almost all the praise psalms, follow this exact structure. Why? I don't know, but it, they, all, they all seem to follow this structure. Call to praise, cause for praise, praise itself, and then a renewed call to praise. It's a simple structure. Okay, so now we see Psalm 145 that fits right into this structure. I will praise. That's the call to praise, verses 1 and 2. The Lord is great. That's the cause for praise, verses 3 through 7. Then we have three sections of praise itself. The Lord is good. The Lord is good to all creation. The Lord is good to his covenant people. And then he closes the psalm with a renewed call to praise. Invitation for all to praise, verse 21. Okay, so let's begin verses 1 and 2. This is the call to praise. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Now, immediately you should see that these two verses are full of, they are synonymous parallelism. They are full of synonyms. Exalt, praise, extol. Now, 
because it's an alphabetic acrostic, I'm reminding you that there is lots of creativity, lots of variety, and David's got 22 reasons why he's praising God. He says, I will exalt you, my God, the king. He addresses God directly, the one who he has a relationship with. And the word for God is God's name, Elohim. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That name is Elohim. We have our first metaphor, king. David, a king himself, exalts his king. So what is a king? A king is a supreme ruler, the one you owe allegiance to, the one you submit to and serve and honor. This is David's commitment to praise his king every day, in every way, forever. So, what could we learn from that call to praise, verses 1 and 2? So what I want to do is at the end of each section, there are six sections, at the end of each section, I want to give a couple applications of how we can improve our own praise life. So from 1 and 2, we could see a couple things, how we could move our praise meter up a few notches. Journaling was obviously one of David's practices. It was part of his devotional life, so that would be one. Another, take time to be creative. You could write an acrostic praise psalm to God using our 26 letters of the alphabet. Use first person when praising God. I praise you, my God. And then use metaphors that fit your relationship with God. Uh, God was David's king, but who is God to you? You could say something like, I praise you, my companion on lonely nights. I praise you, my trusted friend, my hiding place, my refuge from the storm. Praise God for who he is to you. Okay, then our next section is three through seven. This is the cause for praise. The Lord is great. And in this section, we see who and what and when and why. Verse 3, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. So why is, God, why is David committing himself to praise God every day in every way forever? Because the Lord is great, unfathomably great, beyond all knowledge and comprehension, and because he is worthy to be praised. Okay, now we come to the word Lord, in all caps, that is God's covenant name, Yahweh. Now, I told you last week that I was going to elaborate on that this week, but I lied, so I'm putting it off to another week. Okay, just didn't want to get on a sidetrack here. Okay, verse 4. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. Now, look at verse 4 and tell me, Which kind of parallelism is verse 4? Is it saying the same thing? Is it adding information or contrasting? Synonymous. Okay, it's saying the same thing. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. Okay, verses 4 through 7. The Lord is so great and so worthy that every generation will be compelled to tell the next. 
They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. So what we have in this section is a pile of synonymous verbs. Every generation will commend and speak and tell and proclaim and celebrate and sing of your greatness. Now, the fact that generations will be passing on his praise to the next is evidence of God's greatness and his worth. So what is it they will be passing on to the next generation? Praise for his attributes and his actions. Okay, his attributes, glorious splendor, majesty, righteousness, greatness, goodness, and for his deeds, mighty acts, wonderful works, awesome works, great deeds. These are the causes for praise, who God is and what he has done. So application for that section, the cause for praise, what do we see in that section that would help us move our praise meter along? Well, praise God for who he is and praise God for what he has done. Now, David kept this section pretty generic. He doesn't do that in all of his psalms, but he did. But you can make it as specific as you want. I praise you because you rescued me when I was lost. You kept our family together when we were falling apart. I praise you because you walked with me through a long and lonely trial. Praise God for who he is and what he has done. Praise God by telling your story of redemption to others. Speak, tell, proclaim. Celebrate his abundant goodness. One of my favorite days at Watermark is Baptism Day because it is a huge, huge celebration of what God has done. And then, finally, joyfully sing of his righteousness. Sing songs of praise focused on God's majesty, his greatness, and his goodness. Okay, so verses 1 and 2, the call to praise. 3 through 7, the cause for praise. And then our next three sections are praise itself. The first section, the Lord is good. Now, we already saw the Lord is great. Now we're saying his goodness is expressed. His greatness is expressed in his goodness. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Now, where have we heard that description of God before? Exodus, okay. This is God's description of himself. It highlights four attributes of Yahweh, their covenant God. First, he's gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. He is compassionate, same word as merciful. He doesn't give us the punishment that we do deserve. So we see he gives us what we don't deserve, and he doesn't give us what we do deserve. He's slow to anger. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't get angry. He does get angry, but he doesn't fly off the handle. He's slow and patient. He is the God of second chances. And he is rich in love. That is the Hebrew word chesed, meaning Yahweh's covenant love. Now notice that David is using God's own words to praise him. 
Now, what David knows about God comes from more than just quoting Exodus. David experienced firsthand the grace and mercy of God, his patience and his unconditional love. Okay, starting in verse 9, I'm introducing a key word that is mentioned 16 times, starting in verse 9. It is a three-letter word. All. Okay, David is expressing the generosity of God that he lavishes on all he has made. Verse 9, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Okay, look at verse 9 and tell me what kind of parallelism is verse 9. Okay, synthetic. Line 2 adds information to line 1. How is God good? He has compassion on all he has made. Okay, in the New Testament, Jesus also affirms this truth that God is good to all people. Jesus said God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is merciful to all people, not just Israel. The generosity and compassion of God extends to everyone and everything. Verses 10 through 12. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol, will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Okay, so when it says they will tell of your kingdom, who is they? It's your saints, your covenant people. And why are they going to tell everyone? so that the whole world will know. In order for the whole world to worship God, they have to know about him and his kingdom. And what kind of kingdom is it? Well, verse 13 says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Okay, so look at verse 13, the first part of 13. I cut it in half there. But the first part of 13 Tell me what kind of parallelism you have there. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. Synonymous. Okay, he's saying the same thing, just using different words. Okay, y'all are really smart. Catching on here. Okay, now the application for this section, verses 8 through 13. What can we learn about praise from David's example in 8 through 13? Well, here's a couple. Praise God using his own words. Any and all scripture is appropriate. Praise God for the grace and mercy that he has extended to you personally. Express your desire for everyone in the world to know about God's kingdom. Now, why is that important? Because this is God's heart. He wants the whole world to know him. Okay, our next session, section, 13 through 17. The Lord is good to all creation. 
The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. So what do these verses say about the Lord? Well, first it says that God extends his common grace to all people. He provides for those who ignore him, those who disobey him, and even those who mock him. We talked about those people last week. God makes promises and keeps them. He is trustworthy. Now, a king doesn't always care about the lowly and the weak. But this king does. He lifts up the downtrodden and the humble. He supports and sustains all that he created, providing food to every creature. And David gives us an image of God extending his hand and providing food for all of creation. He is a generous God, generous in his provision. He is a good God. He is both generous and and loving, perfect morality, and perfect love. And when we praise God with these truths, it reminds us that God is the source of all good things. So what could we apply from this section, verses 13 through 17? Praise God with affirmations of truth. How faithful and loving and caring God is. The next section, 18 through 20, the Lord is good to his covenant people. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. These affirmations in 18 through 20 are for God's covenant people, which are described as those who call on him in truth, those who fear him, those who love him. There are certain privileges and promises reserved for the sons and daughters of the king. That's us. We have a covenant with God through Jesus the new covenant that he established for us. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Okay, tell me, verse 18, what kind of parallelism is verse 18? Okay, synthetic. Now, the reason why that is important is because line two adds to the idea of line one. It clarifies. It gives new information. Many people will call on a generic God, but God draws near to those who call on him in truth. Okay, verse 19. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He lists three things that he does for those who fear him. He fulfills their desires, and we can be thankful here that we have a sovereign God who says no to lesser things. He hears our cry. He listens. He's not running off to his next appointment. 
He has time for you. And he saves us. That word saves meaning delivers. He delivers us from everything outside God's perfect will. Verse 20, the Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So verse 20, what kind of parallelism is that? Antithetic. Line two gives a contrast to line one. Now this is, this is important. And we did talk about this last week. We talked about the wicked. In the Old Testament, there's no middle ground. You either love the Lord or you are one of the wicked. Verse 20 adds a new dimension to David's list of praises. God is not like a benevolent old man who is doling out goodies to everyone. His righteousness demands that he deal with the wicked. And that is part of his goodness. There are so many injustices in the world. You can't even turn on the news without seeing that evil is spreading like wildfire. People are getting away with murder and terror and in-your-face rejection of God's ways. But David assures us that God has a plan for the wicked. He will deal with them in his time. Meanwhile, God watches over those who love him. Now, verses 18 through 20, what would be an application there? Praise God for the benefits of being his covenant people. Okay, now, David closes the psalm with a renewed call to praise. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Okay, look back at verse 1. David begins his commitment to praise. Now, verse 21, the very last verse, gives us our inclusio. Now, you tell me, look at verse 1 and look at verse 21, and tell me, is this synonymous, inclusio, or synthetic? Okay, synthetic. David begins the psalm committing himself to praise the Lord forever. He closes the psalm committing himself to praise the Lord forever, and he adds an invitation for all to join him in praise. David says, my mouth will speak in praise. David knows from experience that praise on your lips increases the joy and delight in your heart. Okay, so an application for 21, let your mouth be an instrument of praise. For a lifetime. Okay, now I wanted to summarize this magnificent psalm, which is the ultimate example of poetic praise. But it was difficult to summarize because there were so many synonyms and so many reasons to praise. So I wrote a summary, and I'm going to read it, and I hope it will be no less effective, the fact that I'm reading it. Okay. David, the king, commits himself to praise forever his God and king. He is worthy of praise because he is unfathomably great. Every generation will be compelled to commend and proclaim and speak and tell and celebrate and sing 
of the splendor and majesty of his kingdom and his works and his acts and his deeds that are glorious and mighty and wonderful and awesome and abundant and everlasting. The greatness of the Lord is demonstrated in his goodness to all humanity and especially to his covenant people. He is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. He is faithful to his promises, lifts up the needy, meets needs, fulfills desires, draws near, listens, and brings deliverance. He watches over all who love him. The greatness of the Lord compels David to praise, to spread his praise to all the world. He can't keep it to himself. He wants the whole world to know so they can join in the praise. Let your mouth speak words of lifelong praise. He is great. He is good. He is worthy. Okay, so application. Well, I took all the application points that I made from each of the sections, and I put them on the back of your handout. These are suggestions of ways that you can make your praise more creative. But those are not the main application point, which is when your tank is on low, fill it with praise because praise on your lips increases the delight in your heart. Okay, so we're going to close by giving you one example of very creative praise. Okay, you are familiar with Pharrell Williams' song, Happy. Well, this is a new version of the song, Praise to the God Who Is Our Happiness. Wake up and the sun is shining on me, it's a brand new day. Feels like something good's gonna come my way. Reminisce on God's blessing, confessing how I'm so amazed. I've got a heart full of joy that I can't contain. I'm filled with hope today. What more can I say? I wanna celebrate and lift my hands and give praise. What happened? I'm clapping, they static dancing and rapping. We want the world to embrace it, let's face it. Cause you make me happy, happy more. You feel that happiness is for you. Good news is the truth. 
I'm happy. Jesus is making me happy. I said, Jesus is making me happy. Clap your hands if you know that you're happy. Clap your hands if you know that you're happy. Move your feet if you know that you're happy. Go wild if you know that you're happy. Okay, so how's your praise meter? <laughs>